This is Guns and Butter. This magnetic field is the only interface that we have. It's the only shield we have against energy from space. And it has been nice and powerful for thousands of years. And now all of a sudden it's taking a dive. The sun peaked in activity between about 1950 and 2000, the peak period of global warming, by the way. And then it just dropped off. We are in the middle of a plunge towards the grand solar minimum. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Ben Davidson. Today's show, Solar Grand Minimums, Magnetic Reversals, and Ice Ages. Ben Davidson is an independent researcher into the science of climate change. One of his websites, suspiciousobservers.org, is an online research community investigating solar activity, earthquakes, earth changes, and weather. His website, earthchanges.org, is where you can find his new disaster prediction app. His website, spaceweathernews.com, is where you will find the archive of his daily short space news broadcast, aired every morning at 6 a.m. Eastern. He is the author of a new book, Weatherman's Guide to the Sun, Space Weather News. Today we discuss the weakening of Earth's magnetic field, the increase in galactic cosmic rays, the solar grand minimum, Earth's magnetic pole reversal, the albedo factor, and what climactic changes to expect. Ben Davidson, welcome. It's good to be back. Could you briefly go over the sun cycles that you went through thoroughly in our last show? Could you talk about the 11-year solar cycle as opposed to the 200 to 400-year solar cycle? Well, certainly. Every 11 years, the sun goes through a magnetic reversal. That's a very, uh, very rapid process from the planetary and, and stellar perspective. And as it goes through this process, it you know, spends a few years uh, getting active, we say, having a lot of sunspots, solar flares, creating a lot of ejections uh, of plasma, which when they hit Earth, they do things uh, like create the auroras, the northern and southern lights. And then there's a, a period of time at the other end of the cycle of this 11 years where the sun is not as active. And that's pretty much a nice little sine wave that goes up and down uh, on that 11-year time scale. And when the sun is reversing its poles is when the sun gets active. But about every 400 years, there's a harmonic of a 200-year cycle that really seems to modulate activity that sends activity much, much lower on the sun. And so the sun will spend 30 to 70 years without even really producing many sunspots. The, the upturns in the sine wave won't be as high or even really look like it's anything but a flat line at zero, so to speak. And then over the next few hundred years, it builds up in strength, builds up in strength, peaks, and then drops off very, very quickly down into the next cycle. So uh, you can picture it like a, a straight line, but it, it really kind of looks like the stock market where there's little jagged you know, lines going up and down and up and down along a much larger curve that goes up and down that, that you can see if you step back and look over enough time periods. Um, so those are the real main important time periods on the sun and most importantly of all those those large minimum periods after the sun peaks in strength 
when it drops quickly. Those really are correlated with cooler time periods on Earth. The last time it happened on the sun, we had the Little Ice Age on Earth, which was the last time we had multiple million-death famines, uh, million-death pestilence events, uh, things like that. Do you have any idea as to why the Earth's magnetic field is weakening? Well, uh, in terms of something uh, intrinsic driving it, that's really difficult to say. We do know it's connected to the movement of Earth's magnetic poles because uh, if you think of the way a roller coaster sort of goes up and up and up and then it peaks and then it slowly comes back down and into the plunge, we're sort of at that crest coming down right now. We haven't quite hit the plunge just yet. Um, but we do notice that the the increase in the rate of magnetic field loss is correlated with a increase in the rate of magnetic pole movement. The north and south poles are speeding up in terms of their movement. The south pole has already left the continent of Antarctica. The north magnetic pole was actually uh, offset up in the islands of Canada uh, in the north, offset from the geographic pole. It is, as we speak, already racing past the geographic North Pole and heading down towards Siberia. Now, in terms of why things are happening that way and, and why that causes the magnetic field to, to weaken so much, um, we can apply some, some very basic logic to that. And we'll, we'll start with uh, how we know that this is part of a much more serious magnetic reversal event. So when people think of a pole flip or a magnetic reversal or however they want to, however they want to describe it, normally, you know, they see the north at the top, the south at the bottom, and then, you know, they stay on opposite sides of the earth as they sort of shift around. Maybe one goes to the right, one goes to the left, and then they sort of flip and end up on opposite sides. Well, that's not what's happening. Uh, the south magnetic pole has left Antarctica and is basically creeping up just west of Perth, Australia into the Indian Ocean. The north magnetic pole heading across the Arctic towards Siberia, keep following that down, Siberia, Mongolia, China, India, Indian Ocean. The poles are moving towards one another. Now that is really interesting. Now in terms of why we've got uh, a weakening of the magnetic field, well the way to have the, the largest magnetic field coverage on the planet would be to have them on opposite sides. The closer you get towards one another, uh, the larger gap you have on one side of the planet. And it just so happens that on the opposite side of the planet from the Indian Ocean, uh, right around the, uh, the Atlantic uh, where it meets Brazil, that's where we have something called the South Atlantic Anomaly, an anomalously weak magnetic field there, as it is the place that both poles seem to be moving away from. Now, what's interesting is at the end of that 11-year cycle that I mentioned on the sun, uh, the sun does a pole flip. The sun does this every 11 years. And what's really interesting is those sunspots I mentioned, and more than that, these invisible magnetic bands that we had to use the special magnetic imager to see and detect, begin at very high latitudes near the poles. When the, when the sunspots start to form. And then as activity builds, they go towards the center. And then when they hit the center, both the sunspots, the magnetic fields reverse, cancel, and the poles come out the other sides. Well, interestingly, we have 
Earth's poles both heading towards the equator, very much like we see on the sun where the magnetic fields start at high latitude and then they come down towards the equator right before the reversal. Well, sure, the, uh, this has been happening on Earth for a very long time and the cycle is, is certainly much longer, but uh, we're seeing a, a very interesting correlation between the speeding up of the pole movement. We're losing Earth's magnetic field faster and faster and uh, this is sort of the way that things happen on the sun, even in terms of where we see the magnetism moving on our planet. It does the same thing on the sun. It's just that the sun shows us every 11 years. We don't get a chance to watch it on our planet very often. So we have to take our clues where we can. Now, I didn't really get into uh, how fast Earth's magnetic field is weakening, and we haven't been given good information on that, uh, good solid information on that in a little while, but we do know this. We do know that from sometime in the mid-1800s to about the year 2000, so about 150 years, we lost 10% of Earth's magnetic field. That number was updated to 15% in the year 2010. So that means we lost 10% of Earth's magnetic field in 150 years, and then we lost 5% in only 10 years. Extrapolate that out. Uh, 20 years to lose what it had taken us 150 years to lose before. Now, while we haven't gotten a new number, in 2015 and 2016, the European Space Agency's SWARM mission, which monitors Earth's magnetic field, indicated uh, that the trend was continuing, the weakening and the pole movement was accelerating, and that is actually where we got the definitive word because it had not been stated before. Uh, that I mentioned that the two were definitively connected. Most people who were studying it knew that and could see that because they were kind of increasing what they were doing at the exact same time, the exact same rate. But now, now we know that it is uh, it is indeed a fact that they are uh, they are correlated. Now, uh, really, the only difference in terms of uh, where I fall in this situation versus what the officials will say in this situation is that it's not scary, they say. We have some time left. But they don't do a really good job telling you how much time we have left. If you take a look at the rate of acceleration, you know, losing 10% in 150 years, on track to lose 10% in 20 years, then on track, you do the math and that gets pretty scary. Back in uh, 1900s, the poles were moving just a few kilometers per year. The North Pole then started moving 10 kilometers per year, 30 kilometers per year. Now it, it's arguably at 75 or 80 kilometers per year. At that rate of speed, at that rate of increase, how long before that's going hundreds, thousands of kilometers per year? Nobody is hiding the data, but the reason why this isn't major, major news is because they have not interpreted it properly and communicated that to us. And that is certainly on purpose because this is absolutely global panic level material stuff right here. Um, and, you know, to be honest, let's say that you were in charge of deciding whether or not to, to let the people know how bad this was before you could try to figure out a way to stop it. You know, assuming that you could have such hubris, uh, you know, that would be a tough thing to do, a tough decision to make. I can't necessarily fault them for wanting to avoid a global panic over this stuff, but it really is what it is. And if you take a look, you won't find officials stating 
it as I have stated. But in terms of those scary numbers that you can extrapolate, those numbers aren't, aren't some fringe or conspiracy stuff. That's their official numbers on the matter. And so um, it's just a matter of doing some homework, digging a little deeper into just exactly what sort of data they've got and realizing that this is going to play a major, major role in the effect of the sun and those galactic cosmic rays. Because as I said earlier, this magnetic field is the only interface that we have. It's the only shield we have against energy from space. And it has been nice and powerful for thousands of years. And now all of a sudden it's taking a dive. What's happening now is the sun peaked in activity between about 1950 and 2000, the peak period of global warming, by the way. And then it just dropped off. We are in the middle of a plunge towards the grand solar minimum, not just in the 11 year cycle in which we are also going towards the minimum. But over the longer 400-year cycle, we are heading down the fastest part of the roller coaster right now. Haven't hit the bottom quite yet, but we're on our way there. and We probably aren't more than at least one more solar cycle away. Some would argue that we're not even going to get another solar maximum, that we're basically in the minimum now after we descend there now. I think in a couple of years, maybe five, six years, we could see some sunspots start to return. But over the long period of time, what does it really matter if, if that's the last throw or we just had the last throw? Uh, we are on our way down now. And that is the real key part of this because you remember I said Earth had two magnetic shields. Well, we know that the Earth's is weakening and we've been talking about that. Well, the sun's activity is about to bottom out. We could go decades with what doesn't even really look like a peak in that 11-year cycle. Maybe we'll get some sunspots here and there, but for the most part, we're going to be in grand minimum. And so both of the shields we have against galactic cosmic rays are going to be surging at the planet. Now that, coupled with the fact that we did just go through a recent warming period on the planet, at least in terms of the oceans in some areas, and this might seem counterintuitive until I explain it in a moment, those two things, the increase in cosmic rays and a sudden warming of a few decades on the planet caused by a grand solar maximum are the two things that trigger many ice ages or, God forbid, a full ice age. I'm speaking with independent researcher and author Ben Davidson. Today's show, Solar Grand Minimums, Magnetic Reversals and Ice Ages. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have said that we are going into a solar grand minimum, either right now or after another 11-year solar cycle. What can we expect from our weather as we move into a solar grand minimum? Well, the primary effect from solar grand minimum is going to be on uh, the El Nino and La Nina cycles, the patterns of moisture that come at the coastlines, uh, that would be the, the west coasts of the uh, northern hemisphere continents and the east coast of the southern hemisphere continents. 
essentially we think of Seattle as a very rainy place and California as being in a drought. Uh, that's sort of kind of intensified over the last few years. Uh, but that's sort of the last little hitch that way before we swing hard the other way. Um, areas in the southwest like Arizona, New Mexico, going to see a lot more rain. Uh, not going to see as much rain uh, in places like uh, the northeast, places like the northern Midwest. Uh, but we'll see much more dangerous weather in the center of the country. Uh, the North Atlantic will be producing the kinds of winters much more often that were like 2009, 2010 in Europe. Um, the polar vortex events will be much, much stronger. Um, basically, uh, if you haven't been keeping up with some of the weather news of late, uh, this has sort of become a household term among meteorologists where it wasn't the case just a few years ago. It was a rare thing that we got a polar vortex event. But now that it seems they're happening every year, uh, I mentioned about six, seven, eight years ago it was hitting Europe. 2013, 2014, it was hitting the United States. In the last couple of years, it's been hitting Asia and the Middle East. Um, interesting to see if Europe will be up next on that one. But so we'll be expecting more of those polar vortex events along with, you know, we'll still be getting record heat. We'll still have hot summers and things like that. It's just that we'll go to more extremes of all kinds. And that includes cold, flood, drought, tornadoes, cyclones, wind, calm. Um, basically, whatever normally would have been will be intensified. At the same time that we are going into a solar grand minimum, there are a lot of things happening here on Earth. Could you talk about what the difference is between a magnetic pole reversal and a magnetic excursion? Well, for practical purposes, the difference is, is really not much at all. It's just whether or not we get a full reversal or we get a little bit of magnetic chaos on the planet. Um, it's whether or not we go into a, a situation that is really unfriendly to the way we've chosen to live on this planet and it lasts for hundreds of years which would be a full reversal, or it would last you know, only a few decades, which would still be enough to completely change this planet forever. Uh, it, practically, there, there's not as much of a difference. Uh, chances are this is going to be a full reversal. It's got all the signs of a full reversal. Uh, it's mirroring how the sun does its magnetic reversals, and there's just far too many coincidences between the two um, to really write it off uh, in any way that could be taken seriously. In, in terms of how that's going to affect the Earth, uh, much in the same way that a solar grand minimum changes how electricity is going to be affecting the planet and the weather and earthquakes and our health and technology, uh, that is because of the introduction of other energy from outside of the solar system. Now, when we lose Earth's home magnetic field strength as well, uh, and that's what's happening when the sun goes into grand minimum, the sun's magnetic field weakens and allows energy to come in from the rest of the galaxy. Well, Earth has a pretty strong shield against that and the sun normally, but it's weakening now. And so we kind of have this double whammy where our, you know, both of our shields against cosmic rays from the galaxy are going down at pretty much the exact same time. It looks like we're heading into this reversal as we speak on the planet Earth. 
And the sun looks like it's either right now or, as you mentioned, in another uh, maybe in another seven to ten years, going to be dropping into that minimum too. And so we're really losing most of our protection against the galactic cosmic rays. Well, what are the effects on Earth of the galactic cosmic rays? They're much the same as stratospheric volcanic eruptions, and that is cooling. Uh, cosmic rays create the the clouds that, um, or and they they help to create and increase the the spread and the strength and the size of the clouds that reflect sunlight back off into space. This is called albedo. Uh, the two main uh, albedo players on the planet are white clouds and white snow and ice at the poles, things like that. Uh, it's basically a measure of how much gets reflected out into space versus how much gets actually absorbed. Uh, this would be the notion of nuclear winter if you know US and Russia had decided that they were going to fire on each other during the Cold War uh, and you know make it hot, so to speak. Um, the reason why they say that could cause uh, nuclear winter is because it would have literally blocked out the sky with particles. The sunlight wouldn't be able to get to the ground. Same uh, same way that volcanoes would 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 be doing that. And recently, uh, two very famous mass extinctions were uh, were were you know related not to meteorite impacts but to volcanic eruptions creating winter. Uh, that would be 250 million years ago, the big Permian one, and then another about 770 million years ago. Now, what's interesting about this is they say that it's not that the volcanoes blanketed the entire world in in smog and, and smoke that, that reflected all the sunlight or, or didn't let it penetrate. They were saying that the uh, volcanoes were pretty good size, and they were near the equator where a lot of sunlight came in. And the idea is that all they had to do was block out the sun from hitting a certain part of the world and create a little bit of ice there in its winter time. And then because we're not talking about the little bit of light that gets to the poles, we're talking about one of the highest areas of, of intake energy in terms of you know Earth's energy budget from the sun, uh, all of a sudden it's reflecting all of that back out into space. It could literally trigger uh, a global ice age, which is what they're saying happened. Now, they use the term, you know, the ice reaching a critical latitude. Now, this is kind of what we're seeing uh, happening in the South Pole right now, uh, where. For the past couple of winters, uh, apart from the record-breaking El Nino, which basically puts a stop and puts a little kink on everything before it does go back to normal, uh, we were seeing record-high Antarctic ice. And you know, one side is saying, hey, look at all this ice, and the other side is saying, oh, don't pay attention to how much ice there is. It's melting from underneath, and so it's actually just really, really thin ice. And nobody's really talking about the albedo factor. And here's where cosmic rays come in, because we're seeing a chance for cosmic rays to surge and cause those same kinds of clouds all over the planet that reflect the sunlight at the exact same time that a little bit of warming in the oceans is causing a melt event, along with a couple of submarine volcanoes in Antarctica. 
Now, why does this matter? Yes, it's true that we are losing some ice mass from underneath and it is melting and the thickness is, is sort of being changed, but the same principle of the ice spreading to a critical latitude is what matters. Because what happens when you melt from the underside, and that really is the only long-term change, because of Earth's tilt and the lack of sunlight at the poles in winter, everything that melts in the summertime pretty much refreezes in the winter. You're never going to go to the either the North or the South Pole uh, at the, the winter uh, solstice and not find ice there. It's just, it, it's not how Earth works. So the real question is, what have you really changed long term? Well, you've taken cold, fresh water that was in ice form and you've dumped it into the southern oceans, if not broken off Manhattan-sized ice cubes and sent them floating off into the southern oceans. Well, most of that happens in summertime. So what have you basically done to prepare for next winter? You've freshened the water, which makes it easier to freeze. You've cooled the water, which makes it easier to freeze. And that's even before we're talking about breaking off the Manhattan-sized ice chunks and then just sending those floating off into the southern oceans. Eventually, while you do get a thinning of the ice mass that we consider as the traditional continent of Antarctica, you do get this increasingly spreading, thin, albeit, uh, ice layer in wintertime which normally wouldn't make uh, one blink twice because that's just going to melt in the summertime. But if it gets to a critical latitude, it's going to start reflecting enough light that summer takes too long to react and respond and maybe doesn't respond at all. Maybe that year, maybe the next winter. And then once that happens, it goes to the other side, the north. We can't have one hemisphere going cold and the other one staying warm. That's, that's another thing that can't happen on this planet. So let's get back to the galactic cosmic rays and what this means. Well, the galactic cosmic rays are only bolstering everything else that is happening, really starting in the southern oceans. The galactic cosmic rays are also responsible for greasing up lightning storms. They're responsible in large part for hail nucleation. And they have a significant influence on the tropical cyclone, hurricane, typhoon development, regardless of what part of the world you're in. They tend to create increased flood events. They can change weather patterns, causing extreme droughts. But most importantly, as I mentioned, is their reflective properties to cause cooling events which will, again, make the polar vortex events, which are becoming more common because the sun is weakening, it will make them worse. It will make the cold events worse, just as we're not going to be without the heat. I mean, even in the last little ice age, summers were still nice and warm and temperate in the areas that are used to seeing them. It's just that winters were absolutely atrocious. And so we're naturally coming now to this point where I have been talking for a while about, you know, blanketing the skies with nuclear fallout or blanketing the skies with volcanic eruptions, blanketing the skies with clouds. And we're talking about ways to send the planet into an ice age. Well, where does the greenhouse effect fit into all of that? I thought that blanketing the sky with clouds was supposed to warm us all to death. Well, I can tell you that many more climate scientists 
whose funding and jobs and uh, fame depend on the greenhouse story are in favor of it than physicists who actually study atmospheric physics, uh, chemists who study atmospheric chemistry. It's a function of models, partially based on Venus because it has so much CO2. Well, interestingly, uh, Venus's clouds are yellow and black and brown and other colors other than white. I don't know if you would know the difference between something black and something white left out in the sunshine all day, but one's going to be much warmer than the other at the end of it. The clouds on Venus absorb light. The greenhouse effect doesn't work on a planet with white clouds. And so as these facts have started to come out and the cooling effect of even clouds um, really started to creep into the mainstream, there was this interesting fix that the one side tried to put on the situation. And so they said, well, it is the low clouds that cause cooling. It is the high clouds that actually trap in radiative heat, stop radiative heat loss, and warm the planet. Well, this is vastly different than the greenhouse effect we were all taught in school, but let's just run with it. Well, the only way that volcanic aerosols can cool the planet is if they are up high with the clouds that they said would warm the planet. And if you think about it, a cloud close to the ground doesn't cast near the shadow, but a cloud much higher up would. All you have to do is go outside on a sunny day, put your hand on the ground, and then slowly lift your hand up. Or wait till sunset and see how much bigger uh, you know, the end of your shadow is than the one at your feet. It's I don't want to call it a farce. I don't wish to be belittling or disrespectful, but not on this planet is about all I can say for the greenhouse effect in terms of clouds. You know, you don't see clouds in actual greenhouses because if they were white and they were reflective like that and they didn't allow the light in, they wouldn't warm the plants. I'm speaking with independent researcher and author Ben Davidson. Today's show solar grand minimums, magnetic reversals, and ice ages. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So now, Ben, it sounds to me like you are saying that the melting of the polar ice caps actually leads to a cooling of the planet rather than a warming. Is that right? Well, absolutely. You know, this interglacial period that we're in right now, and that's what they call these, the periods in between the glacial periods, uh, may actually be the exception to the rule. We may spend uh, as much or more time in ice ages than we do in temperate times like this. And when ice is locked at the poles and the sun is powerfully blocking out galactic cosmic rays, we have lots of sunlight able to reach the surface, warm the planet, and be absorbed there rather than get reflected. And by the way, the sun's activity, this last grand maximum we were just in over from 1950 to about 2000 during the time of global warming, uh, not only was the peak of the last 400 years, but the peak of the last 11,000 years. So we had our ice locked at the poles, very, very thick. And we had the sun 
blocking out cosmic rays better than it had in 11,000 years. That's a recipe for warming. But what happens is the oceans end up, uh, whatever the oceans can capture will end up having a much greater effect than what hits the land and then slowly radiates off into space. Because what happens is it slowly starts to melt the poles. And, you know, I have to imagine that uh, this situation isn't even uncommon in Earth's, you know, entire geological history. Sometimes we just get these periods where the ice happens to be locked at the poles. The sun happens to be really powerful. We get nice warming periods. I mean, it was much warmer than this when the dinosaurs were around. Maybe this is what happened then. But it just so happens that the two opposite things are happening now. We are taking all of that cold, fresh water and we are distributing its chemistry and its physical properties in other places where they can have much, much more effect on the global temperatures. We're taking the sun and we are dropping its activity, as, as was quoted by one uh, very prominent solar physicist, uh, has worked for NASA, may actually still, I don't keep up on exactly his resume, said that the sun is weakening right now faster than at any point in the last 9,000 years. So not only did we peak, but we're dropping off extraordinarily quickly in terms of solar activity. And it's just a bit of bad luck that that's happening at the same time Earth decided it was gonna watch the sun do this for literally centuries, millennia, and now it's gonna decide, okay, we're going to drop in strength now. When not only is it going to affect the weather, the earthquakes and our health, but this technology that we all basically rely on for most things in our lives, it's going to take that away as well because the magnetic field of Earth is the only thing that is stopping the solar wind from really wreaking havoc with Earth's electrical systems. Uh, it's estimated that you know millions to if not billions of dollars a year are not able to be precisely pegged to space weather, but those numbers are what the estimate is in terms of satellite disruption, communication loss, transformer fires, electrical fires, and other things like that. The only interface we have, the only thing stopping energy from space from having total control over our weather, the earthquakes, the volcanoes, our cardiac and nervous systems, and our technology is the magnetic field, and it's disappearing as we're becoming more and more reliant on it, as generally we're putting more poisons in the planet and our bodies are becoming less healthy, more vulnerable. We're spreading to other parts of the world where uh, maybe we wouldn't have spread there if we knew the 11,000-year earthquake, tsunami, and storm histories for those regions. We're going to find out. We're going to find out why our ancestors, you know, the, the really genius ones, the ones upon whom we built all of our math, our geometry, our philosophy, our architecture. We're going to learn why they said their most important stories were about the end of the world. And they didn't mean, you know, the complete destruction of the earth. They meant something that completely changed everything about their way of life. And they weren't half as vulnerable as we are. They, they lived without electricity. They had to deal with the storms and the earthquakes. Imagine if we all had to deal with these things we've been talking about, all on the uptick, storms, floods, droughts, and we can't communicate with each other. There's no power. There's no heat. There's no AC. There's no stores. 
There's no gas stations. There's no banks. With regard to the weakening of the Earth's magnetosphere, which you've described, combining that with the shifting magnetic poles on Earth now, when we say a magnetic shift, people automatically think of a full reversal. But isn't it true that where the poles are now, they are actually racing toward each other rather than shifting? Right, but uh, there's a good chance that's a sign of the of the actual reversal. Um, the poles can't reside in the same place. But what happens on the sun, interestingly, is those sunspots I mentioned, which have powerful magnetic fields associated with them, the magnetic fields on the sun that are reversing. As they're reversing, we see them appear at high latitude close to the poles, and then they approach each other, meet near the equator, cancel, and the poles pop back out at the north and south. Well, just because Earth's poles are traveling towards one another at the equator um, shouldn't let anyone think that uh, it's not going to be anything other than a full reversal. In fact, most of the time when we see magnetic excursions, um, it, it wouldn't be to this degree. We wouldn't be seeing as much of a weakening of Earth's magnetic field. So, for example, we've gone through a number of magnetic excursions, uh, small ones, in the past few hundreds uh, you know, to, to thousands of years. But during that time, the magnetic field strength hasn't really changed all that much. It peaked about 3,000 years ago, slowly started to come down, kind of stabilized until about 150 years ago, and now we're dropping like a rock. And so uh, this, is, this is not just some magnetic bend and twist. This is the process of the cyclical reversal actually coming through um, and really showing signs that it's not slowing down, it's not stopping, it is reversing and showing patterns just like the sun uh, does when it does its reversal. And so um, to be honest, it, it, it's more a matter of when does it get so bad that conversations like this really aren't even possible anymore. Because, I mean, here's the thing. It's not going to get to the point where we're actually going to be able to watch and get data on the magnetic reversal actually happening and crossing that zero point. There won't be any power by then. This is an event that if it is happening now, and it happens whenever it happens, regardless of what the sun is doing, it will be absolutely life-changing for everyone on this planet and nothing will ever be the same because if you know if it happens right now then it's a, a matter of the weather the earth literally everything i mentioned being worse is the earth's magnetic pole shift causing the weakening of earth's magnetosphere very likely that the changes are, are causing both the the weakening of the overall field and the shift, uh, something about the Earth system is probably responsible for this. I would say that they are um, they are correlated and related to one another rather than one causing uh, or having an effect on the other. The only caveat to that would be, uh, as we mentioned, the North and South Poles are moving towards one another. Well, the exact opposite side of the planet from where the magnetic poles are moving, 
is the place where the field is weakest and where it's weakening the fastest. And that's not really any you know, big secret. It's kind of common sense if you think about it. You take uh, two planetary magnets, you put them on opposite sides of the planet. Okay, now you start moving them towards one another. Well, the furthest point away from those is probably going to have the least effect from them. That's how magnetism works. And so that's, that's really uh, about the closest thing in terms of a cause and effect. But in general, the, the, the weakening uh, of the actual powerful fields themselves, the shifting, it's really part of some other kind of process that would really require us to understand what's happening uh, not only in the core but uh, in the mantle as well, much more so than we, than we think we do. Where geographically on Earth is the magnetosphere the weakest? Uh, it's an area in the South Atlantic that stretches over Brazil as well. It's called the South Atlantic Anomaly. And recently it has basically spread as far east as Africa, and it has spread west into the Pacific, um, only slightly north and south. Uh, essentially, this is, this is the opposite end of the planet. And something else that's really interesting, the north and south poles are set to meet pretty close to uh, Java, Indonesia, just south of Sumatra. And this area and the opposite area of the planet have some interesting things in common. So their supposed meeting place and the opposite side of the planet are straddled by magnetic anomalies, the only two of their kind on the planet. So we already discussed the fact that the opposite side of the planet is where the weakest fields are. Well, where are the strongest fields? The strongest fields happen to be in the South Pole, heading towards that meeting place, but at a much slower rate, but which means they're already much closer. And so it's like we have the opposite side of the planet from their meeting place, right next to the South Atlantic anomaly. I mean, they're, they're so close, it'd be like they're, they're next door neighbors. And then we have, you know, maybe there's one, one house, one neighbor in between the actual meeting place of the poles and the powerful south magnetic pole where the where the fields are actually strongest. So that's one anomaly. Well, what's on the other side of those? Because both of those anomalies, the, the weak on one side, the powerful on the other, are both to the south. Well, what's to the north of the meeting place of the poles and that spot in Brazil on the other side of the world? Well, north of Brazil, there's the Bermuda Triangle, which everybody knows very well. It is a magnetic anomaly. But on the other side of the meeting place of the poles, we have something called the Dragon's Triangle. And that is a similar magnetic anomaly that plagues Asia. Not many people know about that one. There are roots and, uh, I, I don't want to say ancient, but historical traditions of taking certain routes and avoiding certain areas that uh, many of the locals there uh, know sort of uh, through experience and story, uh, what we know through instrumentation and story, so to speak. I'm speaking with independent researcher and author Ben Davidson. Today's show, Solar Grand Minimums, Magnetic Reversals, and Ice Ages. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
And so there's there's just too many coincidences. I mean, are you going to tell me that? All right, so we have this magnetic anomaly called the Bermuda Triangle. It's got a twin on the other side of the planet. Couple thousand miles to the south of each of these is a magnetic anomaly. Below the south of the Bermuda Triangle is the South Atlantic anomaly, the weak fields. And south of the meeting place near Indonesia is the powerful fields, the strongest on the planet, the South Pole. And not only do we have this nice little setup right there, but in between both of them is where the North and South magnetic poles are going to meet and the, the corresponding opposite side of the planet. There's just no way that's a coincidence. There's just no way. Now, if that was difficult to follow hearing it, there's a video called The Number One Risk to Earth. If you Google that or put it into any search engine, you'll find it. It's also available on earthchanges.org, which I think we mentioned last uh, last time. Earthchanges.org is uh, – it, it's supposed to be an educational uh, site that teaches through videos. Uh, I did decide to Hollywood it up a little bit because it's hard to keep most people's attention. Uh, most people don't care too much about science. But uh, apart from that, all the facts are real. All the events are real. And it – perfectly breaks down with really good explanatory visuals uh, exactly what I just mentioned. And when you see the pattern that is developing on Earth, you just kind of have to shake your head and, and say, hmm, that, that's not a coincidence. This thing is happening right now. With regard to these magnetic areas on Earth that you describe as anomalous, the Bermuda Triangle being one of them, do you think these are remnants from a long ago, uh, perhaps a magnetic shift in the poles that created these places in the first place? That's a really creative thought. I can't honestly tell you I have spent much time thinking about it from that angle, uh, but that that might make sense. It you know the notion that it would not leave any kind of signature um, might be. Uh, naive. It might also be the kind of thing where the reason why they're there is because, hey, that's where the new, you know, that's where the poles are going slash the opposite side of the planet. Maybe it's part of the shift that is, you know, happening now that is actually causing those because this shift has technically been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We're, we're going towards a low point. But remember, I said the peak was 3,000 years ago. So if the Bermuda Triangle and the Dragon's Triangle popped up, say, a thousand years ago, you know, who's to say that, that that wasn't the preparation for what's about to happen now? Or even 500 years ago, we probably wouldn't know. Well, now, Ben, if we actually do have a magnetic pole shift on Earth, and it sounds like we very well may have one, would it happen suddenly? Um. Well, that's that's an interesting question. It depends if you're talking about um, geologic or astronomical time or if you're talking about the patience of a teenager. Um, it's not the kind of thing that can happen super quickly. Um, if the poles were staying on opposite sides of the planet and sort of tilting while staying on opposite sides of the planet, then they could tilt to a tipping point and then snap quickly you know, like within a matter of days or even hours. But that's not what's happening here. It's much more of a slow trek. Um, 
the the estimates say we could be uh, anywhere from you know a, a few decades away from things being really really bad to you know just a few years away from things being really really bad and the caveat to that is things were really bad with the magnetic field in 2015 things were really bad in 2011 things are pretty good like remember how i said we sort of go on that like the stock market goes up and down and up and down many, many times. But if you step back, it looks like you can see the larger curve. Well, on the larger curve, like I said, we are going down. But there's still little jagged ups and downs along that line. For about uh, eight to ten months, I see every signature that we are in an up spike, which is very nice, nice to get a breather because I wasn't sure we were actually going to make it out of what happened in 2015 and 2016. Uh, that also is detailed for everyone at earthchanges.org. Uh, that video actually has uh, a couple of uh, folks who are working independently but who collect checks from the National Weather Service or NOAA or NASA. Uh, it's got them very, very interested and uh, a little more than slightly concerned. There's a million different vectors to try to look at this. You could probably – break down in detail and ask a hundred different questions about you know about the magnetic reversal in about as many ways as Walmart has items to sell but there is one thing that is more important than than all of those other things at, at least at this stage because things can get very very complicated and the bigger picture can get lost quite quickly the Earth has done nothing but this magnetic cycle with the magnetosphere as far as we can tell. For millions and millions and millions of years, the Earth goes through this cycle where it's strong and then it weakens and then it reverses and then it's strong and then it weakens and then it reverses. We are about doubly overdue for one. Now, there's not a nice cycle, but we do see they happen a about uh, every so often on Earth, and the last definitive one we can see is twice as long as that interval. And no scientist really disagrees with that. We're, we're way overdue for one of these things. And so we have all of the signatures that it is happening right now. And so the question that needs to be asked first is, do you have the guts to bet against global patterns that have been progressing for decades and have not yet shown signs of changing direction and simultaneously bet against millions of years of a repeating cycle on the planet Earth? Just basically bet that the Earth is, is not going to follow the cycle this time. We're going to continue to be overdue. All of these signs are to be ignored. I... I hope I've framed that in a way that makes one of the decisions sound somewhat uh, less intelligent than the other. And so I consider that one easy. And so it leaves you with the question of, all right, what do you do? Because, all right, what good is information about, all right, there's going to be worse earthquakes and more of them, more volcano eruptions, worse weather, more extreme floods, more extreme droughts, more extreme temperature swings. More extreme hail. What in the world does this all mean for me? This is actually 
about an easy of an answer as I can give. And that is prepping. It's a, perhaps a bit more on the list than guns and butter, but it's the simple stuff. And I, I probably shouldn't even phrase it like that because some folks who have, who have maybe never thought about it or never really gotten into it might not consider it so simple, but it's prepping for the most extreme disaster, one that there is no recovery from. It's not like they're going to go and they'll find all of the uh, all of the switches and, and they'll reset all the breakers everywhere. They'll all be melted. They will have gone up in smoke. What this is, is a change in the electrical nature of the planet. Something else that might be interesting, and uh, I'm going to maybe go a little bit off topic here, but I, I would love to leave you with, with this thought, and we can come back and discuss this uh, if you like, uh, or anything else related to the magnetic reversal. Think about what happens um, when you get shocked on a doorknob or the way a plastic bag can stick to your hand or the way your laundry will stick to other things. Or if you've ever uh, gotten out of your car and you've gotten shocked on the door, imagine there's 10, 100, 1,000 times more electricity and imagine that the last time that the earth was really like this, we were just starting to forge iron and metals. Those things would have acted very peculiarly in our atmosphere, in our environment, especially if built the right way. If built in a, a straight rod and then you took a very, very thin one and wrapped it around it like a coil. You may have been able to do some things with that electricity that uh, might make you look like a wizard. Before we get to that, though, there's a lot of negativity that comes along with a magnetic reversal. This has been a very positive planet. I know it doesn't always seem that way, but in terms of proliferating the kind of life that humans lead on this planet, it's been incredibly benign for about 400 years, and it's all changing right now. We're, it's happening before our eyes. And that's um, that is what's on our on our plate looking forward. And I understand that you've uh, recently moved to New Mexico. Why did you choose New Mexico? New Mexico is one of two areas on the planet that I think is going to come out of this, um, at least not horribly and potentially better in some ways. The primary weather effect on New Mexico is going to be more rain. Uh, pity us. Um, we're insulated from the, the kind of tornadoes, the kind of major hail that the center of the United States sees. We don't get earthquakes or volcanoes here. Uh, ever since uh, the Sandia Mountain came up and, and basically fractured this whole region, all the volcanoes died here. Uh, there isn't even any magma down there. Um, Yellowstone is one of the only super volcanoes that I am I have no plans on worrying about for at least a decade until it stops its regular earthquake upticks and geyser upticks every year, which I, I know people online use to scare people into thinking Yellowstone is actually uh, getting ready to erupt, but it's kind of the opposite. Those are its pressure releases. When we don't see it doing that for like 10 years, 
I'll be terrified as to where that pressure is building up. And so since I wasn't going to move to the other location, which is in southern Mongolia, I chose New Mexico. Ben Davidson, thank you so much again. Absolutely, Bonnie. It's always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Ben Davidson. Today's show has been Solar Grand Minimums, Magnetic Reversals, and Ice Ages. Ben Davidson is an independent researcher into the science of climate change. One of his websites, suspiciousobservers.org, is an online research community investigating solar activity, earthquakes, earth changes, and weather. His website, earthchanges.org, is where you can find his new disaster prediction app, He is the author of a new book, Weatherman's Guide to the Sun, Space Weather News. Visit his websites at suspiciousobservers.org. Also visit earthchanges.org, spaceweathernews.com, quakewatch.net, and magneticreversal.org. Follow Ben Davidson on Twitter at TheRealSOS. That's TheRealSOS. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what this side just tells